January 8th, 2017 in Auckland, New Zealand, and wanted to read a few verses from the Bhagavad Gita, from chapter 2, so I'm going to start with text 16, and go through text 20, so 16 through 20. Text 16 is Nasato Vidjate Bhavo, Nabhavo Vidjate Sita, Ubayor Abhijusto Tas, Tomanyos Tatvadarshi Bhi. Those who are seers of the truth have concluded that of the non existent, the material body, there is no endurance, and of the eternal, the soul, there is no change. This they have concluded by studying the nature of both. Text 17. That which pervades the entire body, you should know to be indestructible. No one is able to destroy that imperishable soul. 18. The material body of the indestructible, immeasurable, and eternal living entity is sure to come to an end. Therefore, fight, O descendant of Bharata. 19. Neither he who thinks the living entity the slayer, nor he who thinks that the slain is in knowledge, for the self slays not, nor is slain. Text 20. For the soul there is neither birth nor death at any time. He has not come into being, does not come into being, and will not come into being. He is unborn, eternal, ever existing, and primeval. He is not slain when the body is slain. So in these very important verses, in the very beginning of Bhagavad Gita, this is Krishna's first instruction to Arjuna. He's establishing that our identity is not this body. Srila Prabhupada would often put it like that in English. You are not this body. <laughs> All right, Krishna. Uh, so some time ago I was reading a, a story about a woman who was... Uh, in a car with her husband and daughter, and there was a, a car crash. Some car had come from the other side of the road, crossed the medium, and hit them head on. And her uh, husband and daughter had died instantly in the crash. And at that time, she saw as if they had gotten out of the car and walked away and gone into some light in the distance. And when she woke up in the hospital, and they said, you know, sorry, your husband and daughter have died. And she said, well, that's not possible. I saw them get up and walk away from the car. How is it that they died? And for at least a year, she couldn't reconcile the fact that she was absolutely sure that she saw them get up out of the car and walk away with the fact that they had died. And then finally, after a year, it occurred to her, maybe their real self is different from the body. So generally in this world, we think that we are this body. We identify ourselves in terms of the body. You know, it starts with, I am a male or I am a female, then I am uh, from New Zealand, I am from India, I am from Australia, I am from America, I am married, I am single, I am a parent, I am an engineer. It all has to do, our whole idea of identity has to do with the body, and sometimes with the mind. I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, I'm an extrovert, I'm an introvert. <laughs> our, our mental personality, and we 
take that as ourselves. So naturally, our first interest is self-preservation. Not just self-preservation, but self-nourishment. We want ourselves to be happy. We want to live, we want to be happy, we want to be nourished. But if we don't have the right self, then we're going to be nourishing something that's not us. There's a drama we used to perform a lot in our Hare Krishna movement called The Wrong Bank Account. So as I'm sure you all know, it's possible to put money into someone else's bank account, right? If you have their account numbers, you can put it into somebody else's account. So there's a story of this one man that whenever he got paid, he thought, let me put some money into savings for my retirement. So every paycheck, he's depositing money in the bank. Then when he goes to retire, there's no money in the account. And the bank manager, you know, looks through all the records and he says, you were depositing your money into someone else's account. Now that's actually what happens when we are putting the bulk of our endeavors into maintaining an identity based on the body and the mind. Of course, we have to take care of the body, we have to feed the body, we have to clothe the body. Uh, etc. And that does take a lot of time and energy. It takes a lot more time and energy uh, than we would like. And we have to take care of the mind also. We have to take care of our emotions and our intellect and so forth. But that's not our real self. It's just like we have to take care of our clothes, but we also have to take care of our body. So we have to take care of our body and mind, but we also have to take care of the real self. If we don't take care of the real self, then when the end of life comes and we leave this body behind, there won't be anything in our account. If we're putting everything into the account of the body and the mind. Now, even people take up religion on the platform of the body and the mind. People take up religion because, well, this is the religion of my parents and my grandparents and it's my tradition. So I'm doing this religion simply to be part of my bodily group. You know, I'm born Hindu, or I'm born Jewish, or I'm born Christian, or I'm born Buddhist, or I'm born Muslim. And you simply go through the religious rituals in a very similar way to which people go through nationalistic rituals. All right, this is the Independence Day of my country. Right, every country has its holidays and its traditions and its customs. And we may take up religion in the same way. As if it's just something connected with the body. And here's a way to meet my friends, and here's a way to meet my relatives, and I can sing the songs I learned in childhood, and I can eat the foods that I was brought up with, and I can have a conception of God uh, like that of my ancestors. Exactly like a person will have a conception of good government and good society as coming from their country. You know, you come from a communist country, you might think, yes, communism is good. And you come from a democracy and you think, democracy is good. In the same way, one will think, yes, my parents were Muslims, so Islam is good. And then we can take up religion for the mind. Actually, we should say something else about religion for the body. People may also take up religion for the body, thinking, if I worship God, then God will give me a very pleasant situation for my body. 
if I worship God, then I'll become rich, then I'll be healthy, then, you know, my wife will stop screaming at me. And, and you know, to do things for the sake of the body. I'm going to worship God in order to be happy on the bodily platform. Now that's a fact, that if you worship God, you'll be happier on the bodily platform than if you don't worship God, that's true. Uh, but that's not, again, the real function of religion, because it's not the real self. It's sort of a perk. It's a beneficial side effect. Just like if people do uh, astanga yoga with the different asanas and pranayams, they will get good health. But that wasn't the purpose of yoga. The purpose of yoga was not to provide for a healthy body. It was to provide a platform of self-realization. So then one may take up religion for the mind. There's a direct correlation between religion and morality, religion and ethics. And people will say, if you don't worship God, you're not going to be ultimately moral. And again, that's a fact. If people are moral without a connection with God, their morality becomes very circumstantial. Their morality becomes based on, well, what do I think is moral? What do you think is moral? And we're seeing this happen more and more in the world today. That morality becomes defined as simply a contractual agreement between humans. If I think it's okay, and you think it's okay, and we're both having a good time, then it's okay, isn't it? That's what's becoming the standard of morality. If I'm having a good time, and I'm not apparently hurting anybody else, then it's okay. The problem with that is that we're not the only ones concerned. Just like this building doesn't belong to any of us sitting here. So if I do something in this building that makes me happy and makes you happy, but doesn't make the owners of the building happy, then that's not proper. Ultimately, it may not even be legal. So because this world and our body and everything belongs to God, real morality is, has to include His consent. You follow? If I'm going to do something that makes me feel good, and I don't think I'm hurting anybody, but whether or not He agrees, because everything belongs to Him. So ultimate morality has to include God. It has to include the owner. And this is just common sense. If you have a guest in your home, then what they do in your home has to not only be pleasing to them, it also has to be pleasing to you. Right? They can't just say, well, I think I'm going to light a fire in the middle of the living room because it makes me happy. So, morality also has to include God uh, for, very, for various other reasons, because God has established some absolute standards of morality, and otherwise we're saying, well, the times have changed, and now this is moral, and now this is not moral, and this is okay, and that is okay. But the universe has its systems of what's good or bad. And when we invent our own morality, we may end up also suffering so many consequences for it. I mean, a simple example is how we've polluted so much of the environment of the earth because we didn't respect the earth as belonging to God. People will also take up religion for the mind in order to become peaceful and happy. Because, and again, that's a fact. If you try to become peaceful and happy without anything to do with religion, without anything to do with God, 
you'll find that there's a limit as to how peaceful and happy one can become. And again, the principle is very simple, that because God created the world, because God created the universe, only he knows the ultimate way of becoming peaceful and happy in the world. Uh, just like the person who creates a car knows best how to work the car. So if we come up with our own systems of peace and happiness, and, and we don't reference God, we don't reference the scriptures, then we're not going to be able to fully understand how to use our time in this world to be peaceful and happy. And again, there's so much even empirical evidence that people who are religious, people who are spiritual, are much more peaceful and happy people. One can also be religious on the subtle platform as far as having good relationships. So there's so many books and, and lectures and courses about how you can have a better marriage, how you can get along better with your children, with your parents, with people in general, by referencing God, by having religion in your life, by being more forgiving, by being more tolerant, by being more compassionate. And again, that's all true. It's a fact. One will have better relationships if one is a religious person. But all of that is on the platform of the body and the mind. All of those benefits from religion are really just side effects, beneficial side effects. They're not the main reason one should take up a religion. The main reason one should take up a religion and perform religious activities, the main reason we should be coming to the temple and doing some service, has nothing to do ultimately with our body and mind. It has to do with our real self. It's our real self that desperately needs and wants and benefits from a connection with God. That connection with Krishna certainly gives benefits to our body and mind, undoubtedly. And on a material level, if the whole world were God-conscious, then we wouldn't see the wars, the pollution, the, the crimes, the unrest that we see in the world. If the world were God-conscious, then we would have a swarga, we would have a heaven on this planet. That, that's a fact. The higher planets in this universe, the higher realms in this universe, are those which are more and more conscious and aware and devoted to Krishna. But ultimately, our real self is on a different platform. As Krishna is explaining here, our real self is eternal and has ultimately nothing whatsoever to do with the various bodies that we go through. As Krishna also says, that we, the soul, have been transmigrating or reincarnating through one lifetime and another. And in each lifetime we have a different body, we have a different set of relatives, we have a different nationality, and even our subtle body, even our astral or mental body, goes through changes from one lifetime to another. But we, the self, remain the same. The urges of the self are demonstrated through the body and the mind. But in their pure form, they are basically for eternity, knowledge, and bliss. As we say in Sanskrit, sat, shit, and ananda. In these verses, Krishna is talking to a large extent about sat, or eternality. So, the primary need of the soul is for eternality. 
This urge for eternality is demonstrated through the body and the mind as a desire not to die, as a desire for the body not to die, as a desire for our memories not to be lost. Right? We, we want to preserve. Nobody wants to get Alzheimer's or dementia and lose, have the mind basically die. Nobody wants the body to fall apart. But the real reason we feel that way is that the soul itself, our actual self, is eternal. Not only do we, the soul, never die, but we, the soul, have never been born. We are eternal in both directions, one could say. We have no beginning and we have no end. We have always existed. We don't come into being in the womb of our mother and there's no particular time at which we, the soul, were created as much as Krishna has always existed. He is the beginning. And as He always exists, we always exist. As the sunshine and the sun have to exist together, it's not that first there's a sun and then there's sunshine. In, in time, you can say the sunshine comes from the sun, but it's not a consecutive situation. It's not an event in time. So we, the real self, have always existed. However, unless we connect with our source, we cannot realize or experience our eternality. As long as we identify with this body and this mind, our experience of life is a fear and destruction and finality. Everything we work for in this world comes to an end. The good and the bad. The body comes to an end, our, men, our mind, our relationship, our memories, they come to an end. Everything we produce, the houses that we build, the projects we create, they all end. And as long as we are identifying in this world, Buddha, Buddha, Praviyate, Krishna says in the 8th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, as long as we identify with this world of matter, our urge for eternality is frustrated. And it's not simply that we're frustrated. It fills us with fear. An eternal being, a naturally eternal being, that has no birth and no death, identifying with the world of birth and death, is full of fear. You know, we want ourselves to exist. When we connect with Krishna, we start to experience, not theoretically, not philosophically, not as some kind of intellectual idea or intellectual construct. We start to experience, I am eternal. I am eternal. Whatever happens to the mind, whatever happens to the body, to the people that I love, to the things that I have, to the whole world, has never ever threatened me. I cannot be threatened by anything. Krishna lists all kinds of things, water, wind, sharp objects drying up. None of them can affect me. If one could live one's life with that experience, imagine the peace that one would have. Because our anxieties are wrapped up in the fact of the impermanence of everything that we identify with in this world. Now how do we get this experience of eternality? We get this experience by doing service for Krishna in the 
mood of eternality. Doing service for Krishna with the mood of I am depositing that service into my eternal account instead of depositing it into my temporal account. Instead of doing service for Krishna so I will be healthy and wealthy and etc. in this world, to do service for Krishna with the goal of reestablishing and reawakening my real self. And such is a major difference between ordinary religion and an actual spiritual life. What is my purpose in doing religion? What is my purpose in making an offering to God? What is my purpose in singing the mantras? What is my purpose in taking prasad? What is my purpose in doing seva? Is my purpose simply to try to maintain as long as possible a temporary identity which is sure to fail anyway? Or is my purpose to reawaken the eternal? Now thankfully, Krishna is such that even if we do things for the wrong motive, because we're connecting him with him, we may eventually awaken the eternal. We have the example in the Bhagavad Purana in the Srimad Bhagavatam of a great demon named Putana who came to kill Krishna, but she came disguised as a mother. And so Krishna, even though her intention was ghastly, he took the good. So the way that Krishna works is anything done for him, even if we're doing it for some temporary purpose, will eventually, in the long run, after quite some time, perhaps more than one life, Bahunam Janmanamante, start to awaken the eternal. So in that way, we can encourage everyone to do things for Krishna, no matter what their motive. However, if from the beginning we do things for Krishna with the intention of awakening our eternal self, then that effect is there very quickly. Why? Because Krishna reciprocates. As we serve him, he reciprocates. After all, if you go to someone who loves you and you ask them for a roti, then they're not going to give you a puri. Now it could be that if the person you're going to is wiser than you, you know, if a child goes to the parent and asks for something foolish, the parent may give them something better instead. Uh, that may happen. So sometimes we go to Krishna, please do everything to maintain and make healthy all of my temporary false identities in the world. He might say, you know, why don't I revive your eternal identity instead? At the same time, again, if we want to do that quickly, best to go to him for that. There is one eternal living being among all the eternal living beings, and he's fulfilling the desires of everyone from time immemorial. So when we go to him, just give me money, give me a healthy body, give me a house by the CEO judge, and he show you. Then he may say, okay, you know, then I'll give you that. And if we say, wake me up, enlighten me, bring me to realize that I am eternal, so I become fearless. Abhaya charanata vindare, one becomes abhaya, without fear at the lotus feet of the Lord. 
not make me fearless because my money's in the best security and I have the best alarm system. It's funny, we call it securities, you know, as if they are secure. I, I, you know, I have the best alarm system. I have good relationships with my family. My boss loves me at work. You know, I have at least five degrees, so I have careers to fall back on. If we don't put our fearlessness in all of those temporary things, but we ask Krishna for the real fearlessness, which comes from understanding our eternality. Then the next need or urge of the soul is for knowledge, sat ananda So we, the spiritual being, are full of knowledge. Uh, we don't have unlimited knowledge by God himself. Uh, but when we are in touch with God, we can access His unlimited knowledge. You know, just like today with the internet, if you want to know something, you ask the great Google. The great Google God. <laughs> that can put you in touch with knowledge beyond yourself. You know, any of you who are my age or older, you remember that if we wanted to learn something, we had to get in the car. And we had to drive to a library. Do any of you remember that? You would actually physically drive to a library. And they might not even have the book in stock that you wanted. They might have to order it from another library. And then it came there, and then you had to drive there and pick it up. And it might take you two or three weeks to get an answer to a very simple question. Right? If you want to know, you know, how much does the human brain weigh? That's what you might have to do to get that information. You know, maybe you could call the librarian and have her look it up for you. Or, you know, sometimes you had this, this big encyclopedia in your house. I don't know if any of you had that, you know, the multi-volume set of the encyclopedia. I used to just devour those as a child. <laughs> and, you know, you look up what you want to know, but then, of course, they go out of date, and you have to get another one. And each entry is very small. And nowadays, you know, you just open up your little device in your pocket, and you don't even have to type anything, you just talk to it. And you say, tell me how many ounces are in the human brain. The human brain has so many ounces, you know. And you immediately get your, your answer. So my point is, when we're in touch with the source of higher knowledge, then we get much more knowledge than we have ourselves, right? Isn't it? Of course, not that you can trust all the knowledge you get on the internet. Hare Krishna. But when we're in touch with Krishna, Krishna being all-knowing and all-pervading, we immediately are in touch, although we ourselves are finite, we are in touch with the infinite. Now, how do we engage in religious activities to access this full knowledge? Most of us, again, want material knowledge. We want to get a degree so we can get a high-status, good-paying job, and we want to have knowledge of the world so we can make good decisions. The more you know, the better decisions you can make, right? That makes good sense. But there's a very different kind of knowing. There's a different kind of knowledge that we can access through worshiping the Lord than what we normally think of of knowledge in this world. You know, in this world, if I know something about the stock market and businesses and how politics are working, then I can invest my money properly and I can make money. That's a certain kind of knowledge, where if I have that knowledge, or if I, I know about the way that people communicate, I know about the nature of psychology, then I can have better relationships. So that's a certain way in which having knowledge brings us happiness in the world. 
But the kind of knowledge that we can access through Krishna is of a much higher level. And if we're going to Krishna simply, help me get into a good university, help me pass my exams, help me get a degree, help me get along better with my family members, we're missing out on the actual wealth that he has to give. The analogy is something like if you go to a very rich man and you ask him for a dollar. You know, if you went to Bill Gates and you know you had a meeting with Bill Gates and he says, you know, how can I help you out? And you say, give me a dollar. Yeah, that's not exactly very intelligent. Some of you may know the story of Vamandev. Vamandev is an incarnation of Krishna who approached Bali Maharaj. Bali Maharaj at that time was the emperor not only of this planet, but of many other planets in the universe. And when Vamandev approached him, and Bali said, what can I give you? I am the generous one. I am the ruler. That was his pride. What can I give you? And Vamandev said, I would like a little bit of land. Oh, how much land? Oh, what I can measure by my own footsteps. And Vamandev was just like a little boy. He said, what I can me measure in my own footsteps in three paces. So that's such a very small piece of land. You would hardly be able even to lie down. You know, if you built a house on a piece of land that was three paces, you wouldn't even have a kitchen. So Bali was saying, well, this isn't, he says, you know, you're just a little boy. You're not asking for something very intelligent. And then he had some pride, uh, for which he got justly um, rectified. But he said to Vamandev, you should ask me for something so great, so wonderful, that you will never have to ask anyone else for anything else, ever. Now, of course, he didn't have that to give. But Krishna has that to give. Krishna has knowledge to give, which is so great, that you will never have to ask for any other knowledge from anyone else, ever. Now, Krishna explains this knowledge in the 17th and 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, when he talks about the modes of material nature. And he talks about how in the mode of ignorance, we don't see things very clearly. It's like having a room darkening shade over your window. You're in the darkness. And when we are in this mode of ignorance called in Sanskrit, tamagun, then Krishna says we don't understand what to do and what not to do. What is binding, what is liberating, what will give us a good result and what will not give us a good result. And we see in the modern age when people are very much in the mode of ignorance, their decisions turn out like this. We can give many examples from uh, the modern society. And these are all sad examples. So just like in America, uh, they have this Disabilities Act. They have these laws to help people who have disabilities. So that's a good thing, right? Do we want to help people who have disabilities? Of course we do. So they made a rule that if people are deaf, that the medical doctors should provide a sign language interpreter so that the deaf patient can more easily understand what they have to do for their disease and more easily communicate to the doctor what's wrong with them. So it sounds like a great idea, right? Who would be against such a thing? Voted for unanimously. Put into law. Guess what they forgot to put into the law? Funding. And it so happens that sign language interpreters are very expensive. So the doctors were required by law 
to provide a sign language interpreter, but they weren't given by law the funding to do it. So guess what they started to do? They started to refuse to see deaf patients. Now, of course you can't do that openly or you get arrested, but it's pretty easy to tell when somebody wants an appointment whether they're deaf or not, right? They can't just call up on the phone and have a conversation. And so all of a sudden deaf people were not getting any appointments with doctors. So they had gone from getting poor medical care because they couldn't communicate to no medical care. Although the intention was to give them medical, better medical care. As my father used to say when I was growing up, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. So this was a law that was enacted in the mode of ignorance. Where the people enacting the law couldn't understand what the result of their law was. In policy making, we call this the principle of unintended consequences. And I'm sure we've all experienced that in our own lives. We've made decisions that seemed very good and reasonable and logical at the time, and the result was the opposite of what we intended. Prahlad Maharaj talks about this in the Bhagavatam. Then in the mode of passion, sometimes you get things right and sometimes you get things wrong. Sometimes you see clearly, sometimes you don't. We could compare the mode of passion to a window in a bathroom, or like that window there that has the peacock on it. So we can see light and we can see shapes, but we can't see very clearly. So if our life is filled with a mixture of good decisions and bad decisions, where some of the things we do work out great and some of the things are like, why in the world did I ever decide that? Then that means our intelligence is in the mode of passion. In the mode of goodness, one sees very clearly. One can understand, ah, this will be good for me, this will not be good for me. This is liberating, this is binding. This is to be feared, this is not to be feared. And ultimately in trend, that's like a clear window. You can see out clearly. But ultimately in transcendental consciousness, it's like being outside. Because even a clear window, we have a clear window there, but still my view is restricted, isn't it? I can see clearly, but I can't see everything. In transcendental consciousness, Krishna says, then our knowledge lights up everything like the sun in the daytime. This is the knowledge that Krishna wants to give to us. Far more than technical knowledge or information or having some kind of skill or knowing some kind of psychology. It's being able to see everything clearly 360 degrees. How do we get this? Again, it's mostly a question of what we want. What are we approaching Krishna for? Because Krishna is very responsive. If I want ultimate transcendental knowledge, rather than just temporary material knowledge, He will respond to that. Why is it that we don't often ask Krishna for ultimate transcendental knowledge? Should I tell you? It's a little heavy. I don't know if I should tell you or not. You know, I'm from America, and not only am I from America, but I'm from New York City. So people from New York, like me, we tend to talk very bluntly. And I know that the Kiwis are not like that, and the Indians are not like that. The Australians are like that. 
They're very blunt. So can I be blunt or will I offend everybody? So why is it we don't usually ask Krishna, give me full transcendental knowledge? Because if we ask for that, guess what we will see? We will see the nature of illusion. We'll see the actual nature of this world. And as soon as one has seen that even one time, it becomes very, very difficult to go on living in illusion. You know how it is with optical illusions, and once you see them, you can never see them quite the same again, or a magician's tricks, and once you know how the magician does it, you don't quite see it the same. Or I visited Hollywood when I was 10 years old, and I remember going on the set of one of my favorite TV shows. And it never looked the same to me again on the TV. You know, every time I watched it on TV, I'd, I'd say to my parents and my friends, those stairs go nowhere. They're not really walking upstairs. The upstairs is really downstairs. It's all fake. And when she does the magic, actually they just stop the camera and bring in the thing. You know, it's not real magic. And I could never see it for what it was. I could never see it as the illusion again. So if we are attached to the illusion that I am this body and I am this mind and the world is here for my enjoyment, we won't be able to sincerely ask Krishna for transcendental knowledge. Isn't that interesting? But until and unless we get transcendental knowledge, we can't even make the good decisions about being in the world. If we want to even make good decisions about being in the world, we have to see the world for what it is. But seeing the world for what it is completely negates our idea of trying to be the Lord's master of the world. So in order to ask Krishna for transcendental knowledge, we have to be willing to jettison our illusions that I am the master of the world and I'm going to enjoy the world by manipulating matter. Then the need of the soul is for happiness, ananda, satchit ananda. What is the ananda of the soul? Well, part of the ananda of the soul is freedom. Prabhupada writes in the first canto, the need of the soul is for freedom. Not just political freedom. Not just having a democracy where you can say what you like and, and worship as you like and where you don't need identity cards to get around the country. Not just that kind of freedom. The freedom to choose your own job, the freedom to choose your own spouse, right? Things that have been denied in the tyrannies of the world. But full freedom. Freedom to do whatever we want. Imagine that. Freedom to do whatever we want. That is the ultimate nature of the soul. It's described that in our original home, in the spiritual world, there's kalpa virtues, there's trees that give all desires. Even the dust fulfills desires. All desires are fulfilled instantly. Now, you may immediately understand why I talked about knowledge before I talked about bliss. How could we have the bliss of full freedom if we didn't also have full knowledge? That would be a problem, wouldn't it? If I was free to do whatever I want, but I wasn't in a situation of knowledge where I completely understood what was right and what was wrong and what were the consequences of my actions, then I would misuse my freedom, wouldn't I? And cause havoc. Therefore, those who do not have full knowledge have restricted freedom. 
If you're, in the, if you're in the mode of goodness, your freedom is restricted from the transcendent. If you're in the mode of passion, freedom is restricted even more. In the mode of ignorance, freedom is restricted even more. So one cannot ask God for freedom, for full spiritual freedom, without also wanting full transcendental knowledge. But ultimate ananda goes beyond freedom, which in Sanskrit is called moksha. Ultimate freedom isn't just I get to do whatever I want. It means I stop the cycle of samsara. I stop this cycle of having to reincarnate into a material body and suffer in a material body. The body and mind have some pleasure, but a lot of suffering as well, isn't it? Fact. Does anybody have a body and mind that's only pleasurable? No. So real freedom or moksha gets us out of this cycle. But Ananda goes far beyond that. Because the essential ingredient of ananda, or bliss, is love. Even the most grossly materialistic person is looking for love of someone or something. Some total dedication, some total giving of self, some total acceptance. Maybe they find it only in their dog. Oh, my dog totally loves me. Of course, that's not really true. The dog totally loves that you feed him, etc. But this, this idea of total love, unconditional acceptance, unconditional giving, and uncon unconditional total giving, and unconditional total receiving. Love is when you find someone or something utterly fascinating, and that someone or something has great value to you, and that someone or something is such that one will give oneself completely. Fascination, value, and total giving. So we're all looking for that. Well, where can I repose my love? Can I repose it in my country? Can I repose it in my work, in my family, in my pet, in my machines? You know, where, where can I put it? And the appropriate place to put it is in the Lord Himself. He is the only one who can fully receive our love. He's the only one who can fully reciprocate our love. Ironically, when we put our love wholly and solely in Krishna, because everyone is part of Krishna, then we also immediately and fully love everyone. And that love for everyone becomes really unconditional. I can pretend to have unconditional love otherwise, but it doesn't really work. But if I fully love Krishna, I'm so satisfied with that love that I'm able to just give to everyone without worrying about what they give me in return. Because I'm satisfied in my relationship with Krishna. So the ultimate goal of religion is this ananda, this freedom and love, this combination of freedom and love, because I can't love unless I am free. I can't love out of force. So if we come to Krishna asking for that, please give me spiritual love. Please awaken my ability to love you. It's already there. Please awaken my loving relationship with you. Please give me that ultimate freedom. Then we are really using religion properly and depositing everything into our account, the account of the real self, of the soul. And if we only engage in religion on the bodily and mental platform, 
Certainly we will benefit. There is no question that we will benefit. And we encourage people in the world to take up religion, even if for a temporary and inferior reason. We encourage people to take up religion for any reason. Any connection with Krishna is beneficial and purifying for the self. But if we take up religion, if we take up our connection with Krishna for our ultimate reason, the reason of finding the eternity, knowledge, and bliss of our actual selves, our self that is going to exist forever, long, long after the death of this body, long, long after the mind loses its memories, all these things, the real self, then we will get the ultimate benefit of religion very, very quickly. And then we will realize something so great and so wonderful that nothing material can compare to it. And in fact, all of our material desires will be contained within it. So it is this gift that A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, is bringing to the world. He does certainly teach us how to have a happy and prosperous material society. For sure, he teaches that. How to have nice relationships in the world. How to eat healthy food. How to have a happy community. He teaches all of those things, but he doesn't stop there. That, that's not the, the end of it. His main emphasis is how to connect with Krishna for the real self. So, I invite all of us, and I say us, including myself, uh, to please take up this gift that Srila Prabhupada has given in the most deep and dynamic and satisfying way. Whatever we take up is good for us. It's not an all or nothing proposition. But if we take up the whole thing, how satisfied and happy and fulfilled we will all be. So we have a few minutes if anybody would like to ask any questions or any comments. All the children here have been so well behaved, it's wonderful. Hopefully the parents haven't been in too much anxiety keeping them well behaved. Anybody have any questions at all? Yes. What is guru and how do you acquire guru? Ah, what is guru and how do you acquire guru? So Srila Prabhupada said that guru is not a particular person. Guru is a principle. Guru is a truth. Uh, basically, Guru is the form of the Lord who enlightens us from within and without. Certain individuals become ambassadors of that ultimate principle of Guru. So, but what is the quality of Guru to say that could be my Okay, well, the main qualification of somebody who is embodying this eternal principle of truth is Sturtrium Brahmanistam. Sturtrium means that they have heard. Brahmanista means that they have realized and they are fixed in the absolute truth. So stotriya, or they have heard, means that they're coming in a line of guru and disciple. Just like if you want to get medical advice, you get, I hope, we get medical advice from people who've graduated from a medical college. And not just from somebody's blog on the internet. Although nowadays, who knows. But anyway, 
But the idea is that we get medical advice from somebody who themselves has studied under a medical teacher. Or I get legal advice from somebody who that himself or herself has studied under a lawyer. So there are what we call paramparas. Parampara means one after another. So because the original guru is God himself, actually guru is, is one, guru is the, the instruction given by the Lord. But this is passed down. Evam parampara praptam evam rajas yogadu sakalainehemahatam so this knowledge is coming down to God through disciplic succession, through disciple and guru. So first you want to look for a guru who's actually heard from a guru who's heard from a guru who's heard from a guru who's heard from God. If someone says, you know, I just sat down in the middle of my living room one day and started to meditate and all of a sudden I understood everything. That's just as risky as going, you know, having a heart operation with somebody who just says, you know, I, I just had a, a revelation on how to do heart surgery. So stroking them, they've heard. Someone who's also, they're referencing from the scripture. Because again, if you want to go to a doctor, they have to refer to the medical books. So the scripture is coming from God. So one should go to a guru who's teaching according to the scripture. The guru should be able to quote the scripture and show how what they're teaching is in line with the scripture. If they're made, even if they've heard from a bona fide guru, if they're not following the scripture, and you should be able to ask them, where is that in the scripture? I mean, you may ask very politely, oh, excuse me, that's wonderful. Could, would you please tell me what the source is so I can learn more about it? And one could ask not challengingly. But there should be everything the Guru is saying, everything the Guru is teaching, there should be reference in the Shastra. Then Brahmanistam, a Guru should be fixed in realization of the Absolute Truth. The Guru should not be speaking or teaching theoretically. They should be teaching what they've realized. Just like sometimes I've run into people who've never been married, and they read some book about relationships, and then they want to teach everybody how to have a happy marriage. And you know, I'm sorry, you can't learn how to have a good marriage by reading a book. You have to experience it. Or people who've never, you know, they don't have their own children, they're not a teacher, they've never dealt with children in their life, they have no younger siblings, no younger nieces and nephews, and they're telling you how to raise children. They read some article on the internet. This is absurd. So the guru has to have realization. As Krishna also says, they have to be living in the truth. So how do you know that someone's living in the truth? What are the symptoms? So the symptoms are given in Bhagavad Gita at the end of the second chapter. Arjuna asks this very question. He says, how do I know who is actually transcended the modes of material nature? How do I know who's in a transcendental position? At the end of the second chapter, Krishna gives that description. Krishna also gives that description because I'm just referring you to the verses because I'm running out of time here. So he also gives that description in chapter 12, text 13 through 20, and he gives that description in chapter 14, text 22 to 25. You'll also find some descriptions in uh, chapter 16, text 1 through 3. And there's other places in the Shastra where the symptoms of a person who is self-realized is given. What are the symptoms? Just like this, you know, if someone's a rich person, there are some symptoms. Yes? So if someone's a self-realized person, there's some symptoms. 
How do I find a guru? Uh, this is going to sound very silly. Want to. And it really is just that simple. Genuinely want to. But it's got to be genuine. Because again, finding a guru is somebody who's a sadhu is also called someone who cuts. So finding a real guru is not someone who's just going to bless you to have good health. A real guru is going to cut through the illusion and bring you to the reality. Reality is wonderful. But if we're attached to illusion and we, and we want to stay attached to illusion, then we're not able to sincerely ask for a guru. So sincerely asking for a guru, sincerely praying to Krishna, sincerely praying to the Lord, please send me a guru, entails having the sincere desire to know the truth, whatever the price. The price will be the dismantling of one's illusions. Because reality is so wonderful, getting rid of one's illusions is not a very high price. It's, it's, something, it's something like getting rid of something in your house that's moldy and falling apart and stinky. But sometimes we're attached to moldy, falling apart, stinky things. So, all one needs to do to find a guru is sincerely pray to the Lord. But it's got to be, the, the key word here is sincerely. Uh, please send me a guru. And then one should study the scriptures, especially at the verses that I pointed out. So that when you meet a guru, you'll recognize them. Okay, do they have these symptoms? Urtia, Ramanishna. Is that right? That's a very, that's a three minute answer. We could easily give a three hour answer, so. If you don't think it's sufficient, I'm sorry, I have a, a time constraint here. But that's a, a little sutra answer. A little concise answer. We have time for one more question that has a quick answer. Anyone else has a question? I hope that at least reasonably gets you started on the right path. It may not satisfy you completely, but I hope at least it gives you step one or two. Anybody else have any questions? Okay, so I think we can go on now with the program. Thank you very much. Thank you. Shri Krishna Gija, Shri Prabhupada.